Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Empowered Living, the Resources of the Church, with a message titled, The Divine Wardrobe. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Bible uses a great many images which are intended to show what it means to become a Christian. It defines it as being brought from death to life, as being born again from above, as a transference of citizenship of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And when we come to Christ, the Bible says all things are made new. We become a new creation. Old things are passed away. From the book of Ephesians, Christians are a third race. We're neither Jews or Gentiles, but rather we've become the new chosen people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles in every nation, tribe, and tongue and language. Now, all of this has some far-reaching consequences. If Christianity is anything at all, it's radically countercultural. To be a Christian simply means that we belong to a new reality. We will not fit in well with the culture we come from. In order for us to live out our high calling, we must reject the values around us and radically live as Christ wants us to live. Well, in order to illustrate that, Paul gives us a new image from Ephesians. He speaks about receiving a new wardrobe, a divine wardrobe. We've received a new set of clothes. Now, clothes do mean something. Most of us wouldn't show up in overalls and work boots to a wedding reception. We wouldn't put on a tuxedo to change the oil in our cars. And we wouldn't wear pajamas to church unless, of course, we're trying to send the preacher a message about his sermons. But clothing dictates what we will do. Now, says Paul, we've put off the clothing of our former way of life, and we've put on the clothing of our new self. So let's read our text, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, Paul begins by insisting that believers in Jesus must not live as the Gentiles do. So how did the Gentiles live? Well, Ephesus was a pagan city. It boasted the great temple of Diana. She's depicted as a goddess of sex and fertility. And the temple boasted an incredible array of sexual perversions. There were thousands of temple prostitutes. There were hundreds of expressions of sensuality, including homosexuality and perverse heterosexual sex. Surrounding the temple was a quarter-mile-wide perimeter, which served as an asylum for criminals from over the Roman Empire. Hardened criminals made the city a city of corruption and vice and drunkenness. And in spite of all this, there was a great deal of wealth in the city because of its location and history. And this combination of wealth and a lack of moral virtues that made the city an amazing city. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus, himself a pagan, referred to Ephesus as the darkness of vileness, 
The morals, he said, are lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus are fit only to be drowned. You know, when the gospel came to Ephesus, it changed a group of people, a new race, a new culture, and new people had been born. They were radically countercultural. They were profoundly different. That was their calling. They were called to take off the filthy clothing of Ephesus and put on the beautiful clothing of Jesus. Well, that's all fine and wonderful, but take note. We do not live in isolation from our culture. The values of any culture have an impact on the believers who live there. But the gospel is countercultural. So here's our question. How did the believers in Ephesus manage to live a different way of life while surrounded by the cesspool of their culture? And what can we, believers of today, learn from their example? See, every time we hear of a Christian leader falling into sexual sin, or every time we hear of a scandal, I fear that we testify that the gospel is a nice story, but it doesn't work. Look back again at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. See, I want us to understand that the calling given to early Christians is our calling as well. The moral cesspool that was in Ephesus is also the moral cesspool of our culture. So let's start by making a statement. Do not live as the people in our culture do. It's not God's intention that your lifestyle should match the predominant lifestyle of the culture of your country. And why? Well, reason number one, it's intellectually futile. The word futile means empty or vain or void of substance. And that seems surprising because if there was anything that was true of Ephesus or that's true of our culture, there are plenty of intellectuals about. But the kind of intellectualism that I'm talking about is empty and vain and void of substance. So what do I mean? Well, Romans 1 teaches us that futile thinking means exchanging the glory of God for idols. And furthermore, futile thinking begins when we don't pause and consider that everything that we have comes from God and that we owe to God an infinite debt of gratitude. You see, Christians just think differently. Worship, thankfulness, gratefulness to God are the centerpiece of all of our thinking. And why? Because everything we have comes from God. In the end, we're accountable to God. Let me challenge you to do a little exercise. Go to the internet, read a news organization's publication, listen to talk radios in our land, or watch TV and hear our national leaders and politicians speak, and listen to the topic of discussions in our educational institutions. How much talk is there of the infinite debt of gratitude that we all owe to the God who made us? Who mentions eternity? Who mentions the reality of Judgment Day? who mentions our moral culpability before God. I occasionally listen to a, a talk radio host say, we're open on any topic, and then they discuss politics, sports, sex, medicine. That's it. It's futile. It is thinking. It's intellectual, but it's void of substance. So number one, the cultures of our world are futile in their thinking. Reason number two for not following them is because they're ignorant of God's truth. Look again at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. See, many people can tell you who started a famous movie, who won a major sporting event in some year gone by, or who produced a viral YouTube video, 
or who wrote a clever article or a book on a subject that captures the spirit of the day. See, I'm always amazed at what people do know. You know, I use a computer every week, but I've got no idea how it works. But you know how many people do? I meet people who understand the sciences, who understand business, who understand the law and the philosophies of education. I mean, on and on goes the things upon which people can understand and talk about. We're an educated culture, yet most people do not know God's truth. They're ignorant of elementary things of God. So why is that? Paul says this comes due to the hardening of their hearts. See, the term hardening comes from the medical world. It speaks of a callus forming when when a bone has been fractured and then reset. Such a callus is even harder than the bone itself. So when we're intellectually futile, we also become ignorant of God due to an internal hardening. This dreadful hardening of the heart means that the whole personality is incapable of hearing or appreciating what God has to offer. Now comes reason number three, we must not live as the Gentiles do. Notice what Paul says, they have lost the capacity to feel the moral guilt of their sin. Look again at the beginning of verse 19. He says, they have become callous. The New International Version translates this as, they have lost all sensitivity. It's a paraphrase, but it's a very good one. It could also be translated as, they've lost all feeling. And the point here is that once we become disconnected from God, we no longer feel a sense of guilt for our own behavior. And the person who does not feel guilt is a person incapable of hearing from God. Sin is something they are incapable of feeling. The good news of Jesus is that we can be set free from our sins, but as long as we feel we have no sin, we're unable to receive the gift of God's forgiveness. That's because we don't think that we need a savior. We live in a society where sin has become a forgotten word. We've lost an ability to feel moral culpability before God. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like none other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our last trip said, now I can relate to the places of the Bible visually because I've actually been there. The planning and organization of the trip was excellent. I'd love to go on another Back to the Bible Canada trip in the future. So make your plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada with on-location teaching with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, evenings of entertainment with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. More information and trip itinerary and registration forms are available now. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to learn more. We've been giving reasons why we must not walk as the Gentiles do. Futility of thinking, ignorant of God's truth, lost the capacity to feel moral guilt. Now reason number four. The Gentiles are given into a lifestyle of sensuality. 
The last part of verse 19 says, And having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I've long found this verse to be fascinating. It seems to indicate that it's necessary to feel something. Human beings are meant to feel. If you don't feel a relationship of accountability, of love, of repentance before God, well, you still need to feel something, and most likely you'll substitute moral sensitivity with open sensuality. And I think this explains our fascination with sensuality today. Of course, each of us has a sex drive. And furthermore, our own sin nature can cause our sex drive to flow outside of God's intention for sex in marriage. But the sensuality of our culture is out of all proportion to our sex drive. You know, I've heard of elderly men, men who are completely impotent and are hooked on pornography. I mean, what explains that? There's no sexual drive pushing them on. There is, however, a desperate attempt to feel something. Turn on the TV or go to the internet and you'll not find moral responsibility. Instead, sensuality is everywhere. Movies are filled with sensual themes. I can't think of a movie in the last 20 years where characters who were in love held off sex until marriage. I can't think of one. Can you? Music is sensual. A constant image of men and women in provocative clothing. Pornography has pushed its way relentlessly into the mainstream. Regular television channels now feature full frontal nudity, and almost no one's even challenging it. I think it's time for Christians to feel disgust. But this generation hungers to feel something. Having lost sensitivity, they've given themselves to sensuality. It all seems so harmless, doesn't it? Yet what has fallen in the wake of our sensuality are a host of problems. Adultery, divorce, sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS being but one of a long list of everything from pelvic infections in young girls to genital herpes, abortions, children raised in homes that teach that brokenness is normal, and the inability of people to feel, to trust, to be faithful, to speak the truth in a life of love is lost. All these harsh realities have flown from sensuality. Paul says that the pathway away from God follows a four-point program. It begins with a thought system that discounts God. Then it's followed by ignorance and then hardness and finally depravity. But conversion changes all of that. The radical change Christ makes delivers us. It sets us free. It transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're now born again or born from above. We've got a new nature. For the first time, a new life opens up to us. It's the life that God intended. But why do we still sin after we become believers? Uh, why do we feel the pull of the old way of life? Well, Romans 7.17, Paul says, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin is living in me. See, when anyone is born again, the old self truly dies, but sin is still resident in the flesh. We've got a new nature, but we also have embedded into ourselves those old patterns of behavior that regularly assert themselves. So what are we to do? Our passage tells us to live the way that Christ wants us to, verses 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. See, the intention here is that every one of us must go to the school of Christ. The school of Christ is not a school of unrestrained behavior. It's a school of submission and obedience. Paul begins by speaking of how we heard of him. He is no doubt speaking of our conversion. 
And then he adds that we were taught in him. The idea behind is quite simple. When we come to Christ, we repent, we give up the past, we make the decision to follow Jesus, Christ enters into our hearts by his Spirit, then we give ourselves to a life of learning, of instruction, sermons based on Scripture, training in small groups or classes, listening daily to a Bible teaching program, as you're doing right now. All of us need to be trained to live like Christ. But what is the goal of Christian training, what Paul tells us? So that's the first step. Learn, internalize, allow your assumptions to be challenged by the scriptures and the teaching of Jesus. Then second, take off the old clothing of enslavement to self and its desires. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, someone might say that they wished it would be that easy. If only it were as easy as taking off old clothing. The passage that we're reading, however, corresponds to what Paul says in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Now, in Colossians, the old nature has already been taken off in conversion. Yet in Ephesians, we are told to do it now, after our conversion. There is, if you will, a kind of already and not yet formula found in the Bible. On the one hand, we're told to crucify the flesh. And on the other hand, we're told that the flesh has already been crucified. See, on the one hand, we're told to take off the old clothing. And on the other hand, we're told that it's already been removed. So how are both possible? Well, in fact, both are true. When you come to Christ, you are delivered from enslavement to self and you are made a servant of Christ Jesus. That's already been accomplished. It was Edward Schweitzer who said, the old being was drowned in baptism, but the rascal can swim. <laughs> See, on the one hand, the old self is defeated. The decisive victory against the old nature happened at conversion by the blood of Christ. The eventual victory is not in question, but skirmishes and fights happen now. Someone has said, but the flesh is so strong, I can't seem to kill it. Well, stop feeding it. Starve it. It's going to get weaker. And that's Paul's point. Put off the old clothing. Don't you wear it. Don't give yourself to, you know, pornography. Someone said, you know, but pastor, I can't stop myself. Well, don't go to the place where you find it. Put off whatever clothing that causes you to stumble. Identify it. Avoid it. And then third, give yourself to the continual process of renewal. Verse 23 says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You know, tomorrow we're going to speak about the role of the Holy Spirit. But here, let me say that we have to continually be renewed. Keep focusing your mind on what is of God. Read the Bible every day. Read Christian books. Listen to Christian music. Make church a weekly habit in your life. Make prayer a daily phenomenon. Let your thinking be transformed and forth. Put on the new clothing of imitating God verse 24, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self is a self that's created to be like God. When anyone's truly converted, his or her heart's desire is to be like God. Yet we often fail. So what do we do? You know, when I first came to Christ, I had a real problem with profanity. I had a godly mentor who taught me that when I wanted to use profanity, I should shout praise God as loudly as I could. And I remember doing that, and it felt so phony. The shouting of praise God was a put-on. It felt that putting on new clothing was just, you know, a put-on. 
I knew that deep down I was easily angered and given to profanity. And I know some of us are feeling that way today. We feel that the attempt to imitate God is indeed a put-on. So let me tell a story. It's entitled The Happy Hypocrite. It's a story of a Scottish prince who was destined to rule the throne of Scotland. It's just a fairy tale of a prince who had a deformed face that made him so ghastly no one would look at him. So they made him a mask to put on, to put over his face wherever he met someone. It's a very long story, but in this fairy tale, eventually his face slowly conformed to look like the mask, like the put on. But it's not just a nice story. In some ways, it's true. Pretend at holiness until it feels naturally. Put on the language of praise rather than the rags of complaining. Act out sexual faithfulness until it seems strange to put on the rags of sensuality. In every way, put on the new nature provided for you in Christ, and eventually your disfigured sinful tendencies will be formed and shaped by the mask you're wearing. Put on the new self. Every morning, go to prayer. Ask the Lord to clothe you with the clothing of righteousness. And here's my counsel. Don't live as the Gentiles do. Live as Christ wants you to. Keep taking off the old clothing. And if you find yourself putting on those rags in the middle of the day, take them right back off. Keep putting on the new self, created to be like God. Keep on doing it over and over. And slowly you'll be amazed how the Spirit of God allows you to make progress. Thanks for your message today, John. Let me ask you this question. Can we ever get to the place in the church where what seems to be the increasing failure of Christian leaders is behind us? Well, I know that um, we are uh, at a particular place, I think, uh, where a lack of fear of God and a lack of a desire for holiness And I think maybe a number of us just don't even believe that when the Scripture says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I I don't think we're taking that very seriously. So I think it is time for us to get on our knees and say to the Lord that we have sinned against him. We have appointed leaders over us who are not men of holiness, and that we begin to call upon the Lord to revive us. Um, so I am a believer in revival, and I believe that it can come if God is merciful to us in this hour. And at that point in time, there'll be repentance and turning to God. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. I'm grateful to express our gratitude for those who supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift during our fiscal year-end match campaign. Last month, we reached out across the country to ask for your help to sustain the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. We're excited to share that we reached our match campaign goal of $75,000 in June resulting in $150,000 being contributed to our fiscal year end. The campaign was such a success that now an additional $50,000 has been pledged to continue our match campaign through July. So for the month of July, we share with you the opportunity to participate in an additional $50,000 for dollar match campaign. Every dollar you give will be doubled. 
thank you for your generosity and commitment. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.